Welcome to the Philanthropy Australia podcast, a destination for those who are interested in the issues, the debates and the thinking about philanthropy. In each episode, we'll bring you a short discussion about the issues engaging the nation's philanthropists and those in the for-purpose sector, whether it's a discussion about what it means to be a philanthropist in Australia, guidance to improve your giving practice, or information about Philanthropy Australia's signature thought-leading events, this podcast is for you. You talk a bit about the Rockefeller example, in terms of it being pretty much pretty clear about where, what it needed to address and how it was going to do it. Yet, it seems that we've, there was a, a period where we, uh, philanthropy moved a long way from not um, observing some of those principles. You know, when, when we look at 100 years of a foundation like Rockefeller in retrospect, uh, we look at uh, notable successes, maybe we look at notable failures, but it's very likely just looking at how the Rockefeller Foundation has worked during my period in philanthropy, roughly 20 years, that there's a fair amount of day to day philanthropy that is, you know, does not have either great aspirations or even necessarily clear aspirations. So I, I wouldn't. You know, is there any foundation that has had a kind of clarity of focus from the beginning? Uh, there, I can think of one fairly new one, but I think most of the other foundations have changed their focuses over time, which is fine as you have new boards of trustees and new presidents. And even at any one time, my bet is that, that John D. Rockefeller and his kind of first program officer uh, probably also gave money to causes without any particular focus. Mm. So what's the one that stands out for you? One that stands out for me is a foundation coming from Facebook Wealth, started by Carrie Tuna and her husband, Dustin Moskowitz, uh, where Carrie went on a real learning tour before she started uh, doing funding. She spent time, she knew she was interested, for example, in, in global poverty issues. And she spent time at the Gates Foundation. She spent time at the Hewlett Foundation. I think maybe at Rockefeller as well. And by the time they began doing grant making, had developed some interest areas, some focus areas, and also had a underlying theme of all of their philosophy. That's unusual. Mm. Why is it unusual? I think that most philanthropists don't have the self-discipline to engage in the in the exploration that Carrie did. It's also in in their case motivated motivated by some underlying values. Uh, Carrie's philanthropy and it's Carrie and Dustin together, but I think Carrie has been leading the foundation, is very much motivated uh, by the work of the Australian philosopher Peter Singer. Mm. That she believes that philanthropy should be devoted to improving the most lives possible and to dealing with catastrophic issues that could uh, could affect everybody's life. So she's worked on poverty issues. She's worked on animal rights because, uh, from from her philosophical point of view, uh, animal welfare is also important. 
but also, I believe, has done work on criminal justice in the United States and on averting global pandemics. Mm -hmm. So there's an overall uh, set of values, philosophical values, that I think informs their philanthropy. That's unusual. It's interesting, though. Is it, do you think people who start in philanthropy uh, start with that very broad view, and it's only over time through trial and error that they actually finish up realising that working small but thinking large is actually a, a better way of approaching the exercise? I think that you're attributing a degree of self-scrutiny of philanthropy that many philanthropists don't have. A huge amount of philanthropy, and again, I'm not talking about the very large foundation. No, no. But a huge amount of philanthropy is um, transactional and responsive rather than based on any overarching set of strategies. And that is because? It's easier. Develop, even developing a focus area, saying that this is the way I would like to make the world a better place, or having several, even that requires a fair amount of work. And then having developed a focus area, understanding how you can achieve that, what organizations are going to be good in, in achieving those goals, uh, is a lot more work. And I think that people, there's, there's a psychological phenomenon which an uh, economist who studied philanthropy calls the warm glow phenomenon, which is the moment we make a gift, we feel very good. And for many people, that suffices. And it's possible even that learning more about whether you actually made a difference, which is a part of the feedback loop of strategic philanthropy, uh, could make you feel worse. Because if I, give, if I give to a cause, I can just assume that it did well. If I actually then see whether, how well it did, almost surely I'm going to be disappointed from time to time. So you've identified a couple of failings, let's be candid, um, the lack of self-discipline and the lack of self-screening. So therefore it means that, and we, we talk often about the importance of failure in being able to move forward. Does that mean that with that lack of self-scrutiny in particular that those failures, the lessons of those failures are not always learnt as effectively as they could be? If, if you don't look at the outcomes of your philanthropy, then you have no way of knowing whether you succeeded or failed. Uh, so you can just believe that you succeeded without thinking very much about it. But I think the, the premise of your question is absolutely right, that, that we learn at least as much from failures as from successes. And then you do course corrections. You try to see, what, you know, why did this not work? And what can I do or what can the organizations I support do to not go down that road again. Mm -hmm. So from that point of view, the measurement and evaluation of the philanthropic activity is integral, is it not? It is. Uh, the kind of measurement and the degree of measurement depends on, on the nature of the particular work. But the way I would put it initially is that what's essential is feedback. Mm -hmm. And then you can ask, you know, how are you going to, how are you going to measure 
how you're doing on your course to your goal and whether you've achieved your goal. What what kind of feedback do you need? And it's going to it, it's going to be different for different kinds of philanthropy. So, in those early stages, when you when you are still feeling that warm glow, but the the feedback is less than optimum. What keeps the philanthropist going in that instance? One thing that keeps a philanthropist going is the passion for achieving uh, his or her goals. So suppose that you are concerned with reducing uh, catastrophic climate change, reducing the likelihood or reducing the extent of the catastrophe. Uh, you are not going to lose that passion just because you've had a number of failures. And that's an interesting area because almost all of the work being done in that area uh, requires policy change, and the chances of policy change succeeding is always way less than 50%. So you have to be ready for failure and just understand that you, know, you learn from that failure, you learn how to do a better job, in advocating for policy change and go back and do it again. So there's a, there's a level of perseverance and commitment here that is worthy of recognition, is it not? For that kind of philanthropy, yes. For people who are less uh, risk-taking and who have different kinds of goals, there may be philanthropy that, that suits their own risk profile better. So if you're concerned, for example, with with uh, improving the lot of homeless people, you may be able to support organizations that are helping one homeless person at a time. And that's not, I, I don't want to say that's a lesser goal than, than the one I mentioned before involving climate, but there you can be more certain that an organization is succeeding mm. or not. Or not. So you, you mentioned government a moment ago. What do you see in the current context as the nature of the relationship between philanthropy and government? It, it varies tremendously uh, subject by subject and country by country. Uh, there are places where philanthropy plays a role where government never has played a very significant role. And there, um, you know, in, in some countries, philanthropy plays a major role in the arts where even though there's government funding for the arts, it's never been the major supporter of the arts. And then there are areas where uh, both government and philanthropy play a role in some social services, and a genuine concern that if philanthropy plays too great a role in providing services, it will give governments an excuse not to do it. Mm -hmm. uh, I kind of think of philanthropy as playing a role. If you, if you think about government policy in general, it's designed to fit the needs of the average person, the, the average voter. And philanthropy can play a role in filling the, the needs or desires of people who fall between the cracks, who, who government policy may just not be concerned about, not because it's antagonistic to them, but they're just not all that important for government policy. Are there also occasions where government are actually quite happy to let philanthropy pick up the, the strings? 
Yes, and that's that's the case where you, you kind of be, have to be a little bit game-theoretic-like and say, if philanthropy does it, is government going to use this as an excuse to do it even less? Mm. And then there's a completely different role when you're doing advocacy where philanthropy is actually trying to change the behavior mm. of government. So in the climate area, uh, the main, a major way to try to reduce uh, greenhouse gas emissions is to change government policies, which in turn may affect business policies. Mm. And in the United States, uh, policy advocacy is a significant aspect of some foundations' work. It's an interesting discussion in this country, uh, advocacy in the philanthropic space. How do you see it in the broader range of philanthropic activity, the role it has to play? Has it become more important? Obviously, in some areas, as you mentioned, around climate change, perhaps, but is it actually where you can see more philanthropic kind of uh, activity taking place? There, there is much more advocacy going on in the United States now than there was twenty or thirty years ago. I remember when I when I came to the Hewlett Foundation in two thousand. We had always done some advocacy, for example, in uh, reproductive rights and health in developing mm -hmm. countries and, mm -hmm. and also in the United States, but began doing more. Mm. And one board member who has had a, had a long history in philanthropy said, there used to be a time when all foundations did was support writing reports which went to the bottom of somebody's pile. Now I see the need for them actually to try to get governments to implement those reports. So there's, there's much more. Are governments more receptive? I think that the receptivity of government depends, it, it depends very much on the issue and on the government. I'm not sure I can, can generalize. Yeah, yeah, okay. So but do you, let's talk specifically in terms of the, the, the climate issue. Do you feel there is receptivity around that particular advocacy piece? I think that advocacy, you have to be in there for the long haul. And with advocacy, you can't take a failure as the end of the story. I'll give you an example. Uh, together with a number of other foundations, we work to support an international agreement on climate in Copenhagen, which was mm, 2000. 2009. 2009, mm -hmm. 10 years ago. Uh, it was a failure. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you could say it set the foundation, in retrospect, it set the foundation for the Paris Accords, mm -hmm. which are a modest success, uh, even though the United States is essentially pulled out of them. But, which I think, but I think that in 2009, I think what you would have to have said is, we tried and we failed. Mm. And then you pick up, you know, you pick yourself up and say, let's learn what we did wrong, what we did right, and, and try again. So I think that's the case where governments were responsive and receptive, in part because between, between Copenhagen and Paris, uh, the visibility of the problems of global warming became much greater. And do you feel that if Denmark had been reprised now, there would be a different result? 
it's there's so many contextual variables. It's very very hard to tell, and it sometimes. I mean, this is a matter of sort of international diplomacy, mm. where you know one or two actors can make all the difference. Mm. That also is what makes it hard to learn from advocacy. You know, it's easy to learn whether a homelessness program is working because you have a large sample and you can use conventional evaluation techniques. Whether an advocacy strategy works or not, you're dealing with one-off situations and you really have to use a, a different approach to advocacy, actually understanding how the scenarios unfolded and what led to it. Mm. Yes, I understand. Moving on to impact investing now, which obviously you're going to be talking about here as well. Um, We've actually got a, a federal government uh, appointed task force to look into impact investing. What's your view about the role it plays and how best to facilitate more of it? So the question for me is when an investment actually has an impact in changing the behavior of the company that you're investing in or not investing in. Uh, and that's different from investing based on your values. Uh, I'll give you an example. Almost everybody I know thinks that cigarette smoking is a pure negative in terms of social value. Yet, not investing or investing in cigarette companies has no effect on the number of cigarettes manufactured. Indeed, cigarettes, uh, cigarettes do very well for their shareholders. And part of the reason is that for everybody, for every individual who cares about investing uh, according to values, there are thousands or hundreds of thousands of investors who just want the money. And you just can't have any impact. It's not that you have a little impact, it's that you have zero. So what I want to do is distinguish between investments that are aligned with your values and investments that actually make a difference in changing a company's behavior for better or worse. And the opportunities for investments that actually change a company's behavior for better and worse are relatively few. You can't do it in big public markets with listed companies. You can do it if you're willing to sacrifice returns. In, in order to help a new technology or a new market prove whether it actually can get ordinary investors interested in it. And you can sometimes do it in private equity, but it's actually very hard, very difficult to have real impact. So does that mean that the strategy needs to be incredibly rock solid before you embark on it? Or is it something that we can only leave to a select few? Um, how do we how do we prioritize it or embrace it or or make sure that we're actually addressing the correct target? So the select few would begin with, and it needn't be a few, but I think realistically it's going to be a few who actually want to make investments that have an impact in the areas they care about. So it's, it's, it's quite analogous to strategic philanthropy, it's strategic investment. Mm. So if you care about climate, are there investments you can make that will actually reduce greenhouse gas emissions? The answer is not in public markets. You can 
sell all your ExxonMobil stock and will not affect how much fossil fuel production there is? Are there investments you might make, positive investments, in new alternative uh, renewable technologies? So I, I, I think you need to approach it in the same way that you approach strategic philanthropy on the investment side. Where, where can I have impact? That's the fundamental question a strategic philanthropist asks, and is the fundamental question that somebody who wants to use their, their endowment strategically should ask. Is there a lot of activity in this, or a lot of discussion about this in the US? There's increasing number of funds that call themselves impact funds. And there've always been, and I think there are increasing number of screen funds, which you know, won't invest in, in certain things. My hope is that there is an increasing interest in actually asking, in actually in asking the question of whether the investments actually have impact, rather than uh, people just calling things impact funds. And I think I think the uh, discussion is changing in a good way. For example, several years ago, you would have impact funds that would have public publicly held corporations. I think most of them no longer make the argument that those have impact. So I think there's been at least some consciousness of what, what impact means. Many thanks for your time, Paul. Thank you for, for the invitation to talk. Thanks for listening to the Philanthropy Australia podcast. To keep in touch with the latest news and events in philanthropy across Australia, make sure to check out our website at philanthropy.org.au and follow us on social media. Until next time.